Good morning. Hey. We're continuing in Deuteronomy this morning, and the title of my sermon is Living into Justice. And I'm going to be preaching primarily from the 15th chapter of Deuteronomy, but we're also going to look at a couple passages in Exodus, which will not come up on the screen when we get there, but I'm going to, they're short. I'm just going to read them to you and trust that you will hear and understand. So before we get into that, uh, those of you who know me well, for sure, but probably even if you know me just a little bit, <laughs> you know that, that um, planning is not my strong suit. Like time management is not the thing God gifted me with. It is not uncommon for me to, uh, to double book, sometimes triple book. <laughs> uh, I, if I don't write it down, I, when I tell you I'm going to do it, I mean that. However, I forgot it like two hours after we left our, each other's presence. So, and I pray that it'll come back, but sometimes it doesn't. It's just not, it's not my strong suit. Checking email, text messages, voicemail, not my, I, you, you don't need sound effects. <laughs> it's not something that I am good with, good at. So I, I don't have good, good habits around this. So I'm trying to get better. I'm going to show you all what I did. Mm-hmm. And don't laugh. Well, you can laugh. It's funny. This thing, I went out and purchased for myself a planning system because I'm trying to get right with Jesus. I want to do better in the kingdom. And so I got a little planner system. I've been reading up on planning. I have been doing, I'm watching YouTube videos. I'm, I'm trying, y'all. Um, so one thing that I have learned in this journey that just started not too long ago, so if I have not responded to an email, it's because it's just, it just started. But one thing that I have learned, uh, one of the common things that I see in the planning community, there is a planning community, uh, is that good planning, good time management, all of those things, they don't, they don't happen just because you buy a pretty planner. Um, it, they require habits. You have to build good habits around time management. See, many of you already know this, but I'm sharing with you what I'm learning. You have to build good habits around time management. I have habits that say, you know, you don't write it down and then you'll forget it. I have terrible habits. So I have to develop habits around setting aside a time where I will sit down and, and I will plan my week. Um, writing things down, like I need to schedule an hour to check email and schedule an hour to, to write, to respond to these things. So it doesn't just happen. It requires changing your habits. So now if you're listening to this, you may be wondering, what does this have to do with justice? Because pr- I'm pretty sure you said that the title of your sermon was Living into Justice. Um, but what I became convinced of, um, as, and what we'll see as we look at our passage this morning, is that me, it's time management, but whatever the thing is that we're trying to do, we have to develop habits around it. We have to change the orientation that we already have. It's not enough to have good intentions. It's not enough to have great ideals and ideas. It, you must build habits. And so when we look at the text that we're going to look at today, I want you to keep that in mind. Because for many of us in this room, probably most of us in this room, I'm going to go out on a limb and say all of us in this room, when it comes to issues of justice, we have great intentions. We have really good ideas. But you and I, 
We live into injustice every single day. What does that look like? Well, most of us, when we make decisions, small decisions, right, about where we're going to have lunch or what we're going to do with our time this particular moment, where we're going to go, what, right, we're not thinking about how we are impacting others in an adverse way. It's just not how we are trained, taught, socialized to calculate our decisions. You, very few of us think, I'm hungry, huh, I'm going to go grab a bite to eat, I wonder... I wonder what kind of labor conditions are in the kitchen, right? Like, that's just not what we, that's not how we're socialized. We don't think about the food chain moment by moment. And then even for some of us who do, right? And big decisions like where we're going to live, where we're going to put our kids in school, even when we have great intentions and great ideas, often what we will prioritize is the thing that makes us most comfortable, the thing that is most beneficial for us and ours, And we have great justifications for it, right? I'm taking care of my family, and I need to do what's best for my family. We are socialized to live minute by minute, moment by moment, into injustice. So just like my big white planner, I'm trying to learn how to live into organization. We have to live into justice. We have to build habits around justice. This is what I think... God is doing in the passages that we're going to read today, building habits in a people around justice. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to to Deuteronomy chapter 15. That is going to come up on the screen. Um, And I invite you to stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. So beginning with verse 15, it reads, at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment for anyone among their own people because the Lord's time for canceling debt has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your fellow Israelite owes you. However, there need be no poor people among you. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I am giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised. And you will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. If anyone is poor among you, your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend to them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debt, is near, so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then, because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you six years, in the seventh year you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock. 
your threshing floor, and your winepress. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. Um, And now I'm going to go ahead and read for you a couple verses from Exodus chapter 23, verses 10 through 12. It reads, For six years you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyards and your olive grove. Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and so that the slave born in your household and the foreigner living among you may be refreshed. This is the word of God. Amen. You can have a seat. So the, the first thing um, that I want us to see in this text, and there's a lot here um, for us to unpack, but the first thing that I want us to, to look at is the fact that God's plan for justice, God's shalom, it is holistic. Um, when we read the, the Exodus passage, we see that, and we know this very well from this year of Sabbath in our church, that when God gave the command to, to honor the Sabbath, and he talked about the Sabbath year, initially he talked about the land and what was required of the land. Even the land needed to rest. Animals needed to rest. Any slave living among you, rest from work. And in that seventh year, in this Exodus passage, we see that God provides. He says, during this seven year, the poor among you should be able to come into the land and reap whatever they need to reap, eat whatever they need to eat. This was a way of caring for, meeting their needs. But what we see in our Deuteronomy passage is that God was aware that just allowing the poor to come every seven years and glean, allowing people to rest every seven days, that was not going to be sufficient to undo the harm caused by economic inequality. And so what God does is he goes a step further in Deuteronomy and he clarifies it's not just that in the seventh year, you're not going to work the land. It's not just that in the seventh year, you're going to open that land so that anyone who is poor among you can come and eat as they need to. You also are going to forgive debt. Now, this is, this is a very important um, message. I know that the first time I studied this passage, <laughs> the first time I read this, I was like, well, hallelujah, praise the Lord. My debt is going to be canceled in seven years, Jesus. Can I take that to the bank? You cannot take that to the bank. (laughs) They do not adhere to this. But but there's a way that we read this that is not quite right. Now, as much as it would be awesome for in the seventh year someone to say your debt is completely canceled, that's not exactly what this text is saying. What would happen when you you, um, took a loan out from someone, you would leave in this time what we would call collateral. So you would give something that uh, the the owner of your loan or your debt could hold on to, which was collateral, to make sure that you would pay the debt. And so the the language that is used in this this text, what what is being said is every seventh year, whatever you are holding on to, whatever um, claims you have, you have to release that. This is significant because the things that people could be holding on to, it often was land. I am in debt to you. I have this little piece of land. This is all I have. I need this loan because this land isn't enough. So I'm going to give you my land and you give me, right, this loan. 
Well, every seven years, it's not necessarily that I don't owe you anymore, but in that seventh year, that land that I'm working, that I've been working, but for your benefit, now I'm working for my benefit. Now I can make profits. I can earn wages right off of my land. I have this thing and it can now produce for me. And in that seventh year, ideally, the person would let up on requiring payment and demanding payment so that there's some ease. The things that people could leave for collateral were often themselves. So in that seventh year, God addresses that and says, you must release any person that has sold themselves to you as an indentured servant. Do you understand? God's plan was holistic. It's not just that the poor can come and eat whatever you have in your field. In that seventh year, you are going to make sure that they have something that they can earn for themselves. It was a well-rounded, holistic plan that addressed each and every aspect of their poverty. God goes farther than just forgive the debt. He says you will restore, in a sense, dignity. The poor will now have the thing that you have been making money off of and they can earn. You understand what's happening. This is a complete plan. I want you to hold on to that because we're going to return to that idea. So I'm going to talk about three things this morning. The first is a habit of justice. The second, we're going to talk about how God, um, the ways that God works that out in very specific ways. And then, and we'll conclude by coming back to this and, and talk about reparative justice. So first looking at Deuteronomy 15 verse one, we see that the, this, this, This thing that God is announcing, it happens cyclically. Every seven days you rest. Every seven years, this this year of Sabbath happens. This year of Jubilee that would happen every seven, seven years, right? There was this pattern that is emerging. God is saying, you need to practice justice. It wasn't a once and for all thing. God's economy of justice is that pe- requires that people are regularly living into cycles, habits, working in it. Because here's the thing, God knows us. And God knows that we might do a great thing on Monday, and we'll feel really good about that thing, and we'll see the benefits of it in our community. But come next Monday, we will be already back to our old ways. And so God builds a pattern. Justice must regularly be practiced. What are our habits of justice? How do you and I live in this world in a way that keeps us mindful of the things that we hear about on Sunday and the things that we think about when we listen to the news? I know that many of us in this church are working in professions where this topic is constantly on your mind. You are always aware of some kind of injustice in the world. But there are a whole lot of us who, especially, I think, those of us who can be sensitive, that we want to be numb. We want to fall asleep. And so sometimes you just don't feel like it. So what are the habits that we put into place so that we are just living into justice? I've talked in the past about, um, for me, uh, veganism and my shopping habits. I don't know if I've talked about that from the pulpit, but my shopping habits are strange, and they require that at this point I have not been shopping in quite a long time because ethical clothing is expensive. Um, But these are habits that I have felt led into by God that keep me mindful of what I do 
so that when I eat, I am mindful of injustice. And I am mindful of the ways that the, th- that the way that I consume food even can impact other people. When I purchase things, I want to be mindful of the way that my money, the dollars that I give, how that is contributing to injustice. Maybe not injustice that I can see in my community, but in, in nations far away and sometimes in my own community. What are habits that God might be calling you into that keep you mindful of the world around you? Not in a way that depresses you, but in a way that brings you to your knees in prayer. It's way too easy to have good ideas. It's harder to live those things out Sunday to Sunday to Sunday to Sunday. You and I exist in a culture that is constantly shaping us. The air that we breathe is constantly filling a part of us that is not shaped like God. And so as great as our ideas are, as great as our intentions are, everything we see, everything we watch, most of the conversations that we have, even with people who love Jesus, because this is just not how we think, the things that we do day in and day out, they are shaping us to be people who are regularly living into injustice. And being apathetic about it. You will hear folks say, it's just too hard, and so I give up. It's too hard to try to think about where every piece of clothing I have. It's too hard to think about all of my technology. I have to have a cell phone. I have to have a computer. So I just give up. I throw my hands up. That's a posture that the world shapes us to take. What are the ways that we live into justice? I submit to you that the first two things... And I hope all of us will do, and I believe some of us probably have already been hearing from the Lord in this area, but certainly God has called each one of us to pray, and to pray not randomly, to be very intentional and specific about your prayer life. When you listen to the news, you should be building a prayer list. When you hear about a war, when you hear about a, a this, if you Check out NPR every once in a while. If you hear a story about, you know, the chain of production, that should become a prayer list for you. And when you pray, believe that God is hearing you and that God is going to then tell you to take your feet somewhere, (laughs) tell you to put your hands on something, tell you to live in a way that will reflect. Do you understand what I'm saying? So the place that you start when you are trying to build your habit of justice, when you are trying to learn to live into justice, is to begin to take prayer seriously and to be very targeted. When I pray, I believe I'm doing battle. I'm not just shouting to Santa Claus my Christmas wish list. I am on a battlefield, and I am trying to get my marching orders. So our first priority, our first Habit should be prayer. And then I guarantee you, God will begin to call you into some other habits. The next thing I want us to talk about in this passage, we've all heard the idea that power, absolute power, corrupts absolutely. Well, I want to submit to you that both power and powerlessness can corrupt. So in Deuteronomy uh, 15, verse 9, God focuses on the one who has power instead of the one who does not have power. And that verse, that's where it's written kind of weird. It reads a little odd, but God says to the, to the people, look, don't let this thought into your mind. Oh, the year of the seventh year is coming, the year of canceling debt. And then you treat that person with a tight hand. What does that mean? 
God is speaking to the one who has the debt and saying, don't, don't walk around and think, you know what? Pretty soon, this thing that I'm holding on to, this debt, I'm not even going to be able to earn on it anymore. So why should I be kind to you now? Why should I give to you now? Why should I care about your needs? In about a year, you, this gets canceled. You understand? God speaks to the one who has power. This is, this is, it sounds obvious when you read it, but this is what our culture would do. Our culture would say to the person who owes, don't let this thought into your mind. Pretty soon my debt is going to get canceled. So why do I have to continue to worry about paying it? See, our society teaches us that everybody's just looking for a handout. Poor people are poor because they don't work hard enough. Poor people are poor because they're just lazy. Poor people are poor because they just want to mooch off the system. And so when we hear something like that, the first inclination would be, we got to speak to those poor people and make sure they know they should still be upright and decent, right? We need to make sure they know you can't just mooch. You can't just wait for a handout. That's not what God does. God speaks to the one who is powerful and he says, make sure you don't get caught up in believing that your security, that your power that it is tied up in you holding on to as much as you can hold on. You make sure you don't get caught up in being corrupted by the wealth that you have. Make sure you don't get caught up in becoming a person who is not living like I have called you to live, like the people who I brought out of Egypt. You make sure you don't let the thought even enter your mind because then the poor may cry out against you and I will hear their cry. And I will judge you. That's a word that we should probably, like, you should feel just a a bit uncomfortable. Because I think it's probably difficult to grow up in this country. I don't care how liberal you are. I think it is difficult to grow up in this country and not have at least on one occasion had some sort of negative thought about the poor. Them. Unless you grew up poor. (laughs) And then you were the them. But even for some of us, when, you, when the Lord brings you out of something, you can start to fix your mind and fix your lips to say some things that you would have shuddered at had someone said against you. You understand. This should make us nervous. But it's not just the powerful that can be corrupted. I'm going to read for you um, Exodus chapter 10. I'm going to read the first two verses of that passage. Says then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So in my own um, quiet time, my, my personal study, I'm in the book of Exodus. And one of the questions that I've had is I, I've, I've always struggled with this notion, um, the, the few times where it says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. So it's just like, well, that, I mean, well, then what was he going to do? You, <laughs> off, you know he's not letting your people go. Like, why? Why did you do that? Jesus. Um, but this time around, just studying it, uh, w- one of the things that, that struck me immediately is, we, you know, we say the word Pharaoh and we don't, none of us live in a time of pharaohs. And so that's even more removed from us than king. But Pharaoh wasn't just like a king. Pharaoh was considered a god, like a god. 
And so the Egyptian culture, the, 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 the place that the Israelites were enslaved in, they had become accustomed to, one, living under idolatry, but also living into a system where they had lost who they are, right? Their own identity as a people of God. They had lost sight of who their God was. They had begun to live into an attitude of servitude and all the other kinds of negative self-images and sicknesses that come with routine, lifelong, generational oppression. And so when God hardens Pharaoh's heart, in some of the places, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But God is being very intentional in this moment. It's not just to free the Egyptians. He had to show them who he was and remind them who they were. In that passage, when he says, so that you can tell your children and your grandchildren, the people who Moses is speaking to in Deuteronomy are those grandchildren who are now about to go into the land. It's a generation of people who have walked around and known parents who lived in a wilderness and parents who had only known slavery. There's some things that get worked in you over time. Some things that you begin to accept about yourself that are absolute lies. Some ways that you start to think things ought to be done that are just not true. See, God understood that the tendency of this people would be to get into the land and just reproduce what they had already known. To live accepting their servant, their servitude, to live accepting their low state, or to reproduce the injustice that they had seen those in power reproduce. And so it's not just the powerful who had been corrupted. The powerless were in danger of being corrupted. And so when God says you return to them, that thing you are holding in place of the dead, it's not just about their finances. It's about their whole personhood. He is restoring to them, their dignity, and reminding them of who they are. You will not be defined by your financial condition. You are who I say you are. And who you are is exactly who the man who holds the debt is. You are children of the Most High God. Power corrupts, absolutely, but powerlessness also corrupts because it warps our identity, and it can warp the image of God inside of us. We live in a world right now where there are people who on a regular basis are being told you are not fully human. That was something that was written into law at one point of time regarding black folk. And though it is not written into law anymore, on a regular basis, our society says to some people, you are not fully human. To be American is to be white and heterosexual and quite frankly, male or married to one. You are not fully human. Powerlessness can corrupt. And so God speaks to both, the powerful and the powerless. And he says, do not let yourselves be corrupted by plenty or by lack. So this leads us to the final point, and that is reparative justice. Um, in verses 12 through 15, the, the, the chapter takes a turn from this um, forgiveness of debt, and it goes into a very specific thing. It starts to talk about indentured servitude. I want to read um, 
just again from Exodus 3, chapter 20. I don't think I should know. I haven't read this yet. I'm going to read Exodus 3, chapter 20, so that you can see the foundation for where this comes from. At the end of um, the Deuteronomy passage, God says to, to tell, to, Moses is supposed to instruct the people what he heard from God. And what God tells him is, you make sure that they understand that in the seventh year, they are to release any person who has sold themselves into indentured servitude. And when they leave you, you don't send them out empty-handed. So not only do you let go of whatever the, the collateral is that you are holding, you let go of them, you also send them out with something. You give them from, your, from the things that they worked and working as they worked your land, you go ahead and you, you give them some of that. This comes from a place. In Exodus 3, 20 and 22, God says to Moses that he is to tell um, Pharaoh and tell the people, I will stretch out my hand and I will strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people so that when you leave, you will not go empty handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder the Egyptians. So when this comes to pass, this is early on in in Exodus when Moses is first going to the people and he's telling them, hey, look, I've come back. The Lord told me to come and get you all. We're all going to be free. So when this comes to pass, it happens right after the Exodus. Does anybody remember what the last plague was in that in Exodus? The plague of the firstborn sons, right? So the plague of the firstborn. So everybody goes to sleep and the Israelites put blood over their doorposts of a lamb that they have slaughtered so that the, that the Lord will pass over right their house and God strikes or allows the, the firstborn of all of the Egyptians to be struck dead. The firstborn sons of all, and not just the Egyptians, but the livestock, the firstborn of everything struck dead, but the Egyptians were spared. So you can imagine, right, if you are in your home and the text tells us that in the middle of the night, people woke up and were wailing. And you can just imagine the sound of it. Like, can, I, you wake up. It's so sad, but there's some places right now where I imagine that sound is happening right now as I'm preaching this sermon. But at this time, you can just imagine waking up and your firstborn child, from the pharaoh to the lowliest prisoner, your firstborn is gone, is dead. You can imagine what that sounded like, what that felt like. And this had come after all of the other plagues, after darkness and locusts and flies and blood in the night, right? This had come after all of these other um, atrocities. It's on that night that Pharaoh absolutely says, look, go. But in that moment, this is exactly what happens. The Egyptian women start giving things to the Israelites. It's not just go, get out of here, go. No, it's here, go, take this and go. Here, take this and go. That doesn't happen outside of God, right? But these people who had lived and known only slavery and servitude, God says, I am going to give you favor among people who should absolutely despise you and they are going to give to you silver and gold and they don't put it on their finger. You are to put it on the finger of your sons and your daughters. 
that next generation. Now, everybody, when you read scripture, we all see it through our own um, experiences. And so me as a black woman, when I read this, what I see is God breaking generational oppression. (laughs) God says, your children will not go from here empty-handed. You will not walk out of here and not be able to provide for your children. It's going back to that establishing personhood and dignity. God says, I am setting it up so that when you leave this land that you have been enslaved in, you leave this land where you have experienced nothing but oppression and injustice, you will walk out of here with your children adorned in silver and gold that comes from the hands of your oppressors. Now, you might not want to say amen, but that's an amen and a hallelujah from me. When we did our panel last week or the week before, I think it was two weeks ago, um, the question of reparations came up. And it's a tricky question. It's it's probably not that tricky, um, but it's tricky in the sense (laughs) that it makes people uncomfortable, so (laughs) it's hard to talk about. Um, but, but, But Esther asked an excellent question. How do we actually do this? Because we, we talk about it and it sounds good, but what, do, what can the church do? When I said earlier that we need to have habits and we need to be prayerful, we need to begin there. I believe wholeheartedly that God may lead some of us into habits of justice that are reparative justice. There are some of us, all of us, quite frankly, have benefited from Labor we did not do from seeds we did not plant, right? We have enjoyed harvests from fields we had nothing to do with, all of us, in some way. And so all of us stand in, in, in a place where we need to be thinking about what does it mean, not to just have high ideals, but to live in a way that restores and repairs. And I think that when we make our first habit prayer, God might lead us into some very concrete ways of doing that. Because there are concrete ways of doing that. Ways of purchasing houses that does this. Ways of giving money that does. Right? There are concrete things that we can do. Do not ask me after the service what those concrete things are. Because I did not make a list. But I know that there are concrete things. You could probably ask my mama. (laughs) I'm sure she has some ideas. There are things that the Lord may lead us into. See, when we get to this this passage and God is talking to to Moses and preparing their people to go into the land, what we understand is that there are going to be folk who are poor, Because the the text says there's always going to be poor in your land. There will be people who are poor because of injustice. There will be people who have nothing because they already had a little. And then just to get a little bit more, they had to give up what little they had, right? There are people who will sell their very selves into indentured servitude because they are poor. People who will give you their lack. And so what God does is he says, I'm interrupting this cycle. And not. Not just because I say so, but because I've done so. Because when you walked out of Egypt as slaves, I restored you. And so when you send people from your land that have been indebted to you and you send them on, you will make sure they leave breaking the cycle of poverty. Because if they just left, they're no better off than they were when they came. But they will go with something. You understand. 
when God moves, he doesn't just operate in the, in, in the realm of our great ideas. He doesn't just operate in the realm of our good intentions. We are the body of Christ. We are supposed to be active, hands, feet, that move, that go, that touch, that breathe, that heal. Everything around us is shaping us to be the opposite of who God created us to be. So we have to be diligent in building habits of justice. We must be people who take God's word seriously. And we can't be content to read it in the way that it was taught to us in Sunday school. There are some things the Holy Spirit might want to say to you in Scripture that you would never have thought about on your own. That's the beauty of a living and active word, but you got to read it in order for it to live and be active in your life. Amen. We have to be people who take seriously prayer so that God can then speak and direct us. And then when he does, we need to be serious about being people who are obedient. Because God is going to call you to do things that don't feel comfortable. God is going to call you to go places that don't feel comfortable. He is going to call you to do things and go places that your family is going to look at you and say, excuse me. Your friends will say, excuse me. We need to be people who build a habit of obedience. You understand? So I'm going to pray for us now. Um, and um, I just, before I pray, if, if Pastor David has been talking about this a while, and I think it's been coming up often, and I know I have felt it um, but I, I really do strongly believe that this is a season of preparation for us. And for some of us, that preparation is happening in a valley. <laughs> and so we are experiencing attacks and we are experiencing um, just, just a lot of, uh, of struggle and strife. That, when that happens, that's not just random. That's not just when you look at your life <laughs> and you see, um, you see difficulty constantly and you see struggle, you see that. That ought to be something that makes you shout hallelujah because you know that the enemy is coming for you and, and you have victory so you can shout hallelujah. But it also means that you need to not run from that and not do the things that you are tempted to do. What we're all tempted to do is numb ourselves, to numb ourselves with entertainment, to numb ourselves with whatever it is, it is your, your vice. This is a season where I really believe that God wants to speak to our church and where he is mobilizing us to get up and be the church. And not just our church. Like when I talk to people at other congregations, it is um, almost every Sunday when I talk to different friends, a very similar message was preached in their church. That, that's, not, that's not on accident. God is moving. We're in very, very dark times. Like I don't think anybody would debate that. God is moving. And so we need to be paying attention. And so we should be awake and not lulled to sleep. We should be awake and not constantly in despair over whatever the enemy is trying to do in our lives. This is a season to be prayerful and to be reading scripture and, be, and to be talking to one another because you think something is happening to you and nobody else is going through it. And then you talk to five other people and you're like, wait, we're all having this problem? Oh, no, we know we need to pray, right? So I, I'm going to pray um, for us to continue to lean in and to also be wise. 
and discerning about what's going on in our lives. It's not just your personal failings or just everything is falling apart. If you feel like this is a season where it is a, a, a particular um, struggle just to be, that's not an accident. So, Father, I, I do um, lift all of us up before you. God, I thank you that you are, you are a sovereign God who is absolutely in control and un, unwavering. So I thank you that even as some of us are um, battling, some of us are in a valley, you are right there with us and you're not with us running around pulling your hair out trying to figure out what to do next. I thank you, Lord, that you have us exactly where you want us to be. And so, Lord, it's my prayer that you would keep us in the place that you have us, but focused on you. God, make us a people who pray. Teach us how to talk to you, oh God, and teach us how to hear you. I'm praying right now that you would be building um, community in even deeper ways among us so that we're not carrying our burdens on our own, but we're sharing with one another what's going on. I pray that we would be a people who do battle for each other and not just for each other, but for this world. And so God, teach us how to do spiritual battle. You've given us every tool that we need. You've given us every weapon that we need. We are powerful and we are mighty, but we don't know it. And so Lord, I'm praying that you would remind us today. Lord, this week, I pray very specifically that you would speak to each and every one of us at least one way that you desire us to live into the habit of justice. One place in our life that we need to submit to you. One area where you want us to walk a different way than the direction we've been walking in. God, (laughs) you have given us your Holy Spirit. You have given us authority to tread on serpents. So please let us not be a folk who want to be lulled to sleep in a time where we need to be wide awake and prepared and ready and waiting and watching and walking and moving and healing and loving and protesting and calling and whatever it is that you are calling us to do. And so God, I, I pray for for every visitor who has come today, because I don't think it's a mistake that they came on this particular Sunday and heard this crazy message. So I ask that if they, if they are here, and maybe this might be the first and the last, maybe you're going to call them somewhere else. But Lord, I'm asking that you, would, that you would allow the seeds that are planted in their hearts on this Sunday to produce fruit. And if it be in this church or some other church that the fruit that is produced would drop additional seeds that would reap a harvest, oh God. Because we are one body. So make us healthy. Make us strong and equip us, oh God, to do your work. Thank you, Jesus. In your name, amen. So if you... um
are visiting with us for the first time, I just want to say welcome again. <laughs> Very happy that you came. And I do hope that you all will take a moment to fill out the, um, the welcome card because we really would like to just stay in touch. And again, we don't, we don't overwhelm you. Um, but just to send out an email to say thank you for being with us. Um, if you're here and there's some things that you are praying about, and maybe you're here and you've been writing the same prayer request on the card every Sunday, I want you to please write it again. Or maybe you're here and you have yet to fill out a prayer request card, but you're going through the same thing you've been going through every Sunday. Please let this be the Sunday that you write it down because we want to pray for you. And I I hate those words. I hate that sentence because it sounds so trite when you say it in church. I'm going to pray for you. We want to pray for you. I do not know how to impress upon you enough that when I say that, I mean it. Maybe I should say this. We want to do battle for you. We would like to take up our swords and our spears and we would like to go into holy warfare for you. So if you have been going through the same battle on your own and you've been fighting week in, week out, and you have yet to put that and yet to invite somebody else to pray, we would like to join you on the battlefield. We want to get right on the front line with you. So please don't leave here. And I mean it when I say it, do not leave here without filling out a prayer request card. If you are in a place where you're like, hey, I'm struggling with some stuff, but I'm not ready to put my name on a card and let everybody know. And it's not everybody. It's just the pastoral staff and the prayer team. But you, I get it. You might not be ready to do that. Make it anonymous. Just write the, we'll still pray. <laughs> we'll still pray. And, and Jesus will know who you are, even if I can't say your name when I, when I say the prayer. Like, God will get it. So please don't leave here without filling out a prayer card. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to invite um, our ushers to come up and um, collect our offering. And I'll go ahead and pray for that uh, really quickly. If you're visiting with us today, please just. Let the basket pass you by. Um, but, you know, if you're not visiting, don't let the basket pass you. I don't know what, how to finish that sentence. <laughs> so um, please pray with me. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I just thank you for, um, I thank you for your good work, for the good work that you are doing in and among this church. So, Lord, I pray for this time of offering, and I ask God that every, um, every penny that is given into your kingdom would be used um, to advance your will, to advance your name, to make you great in this land. I'm asking that you would put this money, these offerings, these tithes to very specific and good use, Lord. And I pray, God, for each one of us who is giving today and for each person who desires to give but doesn't have it, God, I I am praying that that we would have a heart of of gratefulness, that we wouldn't put money in out of row, we wouldn't do it out of obligation, but that you would make each one of us cheerful givers, knowing that this is just a small way that we confess and declare that we trust you, that we do not fear scarcity, and that we know who our provider is. And so we pray that you would bless this offering. In Jesus' name, amen.